This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number five of the series devoted to the word title, The Son. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you would join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read together Matthew chapter 11. When we met together last time, we spent a considerable amount of our time dealing with the two genealogies which appear in the Gospels, the one in Matthew, which begins at Abraham, the other in Luke, which goes right on to Adam. The one descending from Solomon, the son of David, the other descending from Nathan, the son of David. And inasmuch as no man can be the descendant, both of his uh, father and his uncle, it's obvious on the very surface that here we have the genealogy of Joseph, the literal um, descent in Joseph's line, right back, and then we have the line of the Mary, although her name isn't mentioned, uh, yet that it was the custom of the times this was the son-in-law because you remember it says that when he was about 30 years of age as was supposed and there's no supposition in a birth certificate or should not be the word logismi is the word which is many times translated to reckon and it means to reckon legally but you will see on the card that you have with this tape that we've had to transfer some of the points that were considered at that time and if you are perplexed about it, as you might well be, well, you might like to go over the ground again looking up some of these references. This evening, we are turning our attention to the opening chapters of the Gospel according to Luke. And we are dealing particularly with the angelic witness that gave us testimony concerning the forerunner, testimony concerning the actual birth, and a testimony to the shepherds telling them about what had taken place at Bethlehem. There's a great deal of space occupied in the Gospels, more than perhaps you would believe unless you checked it, to the record concerning John the Baptist. Doesn't mean to say that he usurps any place that belongs to Christ. There, by no means. But I think you'll agree with me that the greater the forerunner, the greater must be he that is being heralded. And when we get to, when we get back to the Old Testament, we find that John the Baptist is practically equivalent to the promise in Malachi about Elijah and um, if the forerunner fulfills the passage in Isaiah comfort ye, comfort ye my people every valley shall be exalted and I send my messenger before me well here was the herald here was the one who was waking up the people he was the one preparing a people for the Lord and so the more we emphasize 
at the beginning, the way in which scripture does, the coming of this important man, the last of the prophets, and the beginning of the witness for Christ, the more important he becomes too. I'm sure nobody took the slightest notice of me when we were coming along in Mr. Canning's car this evening. But if I had about two or three outriders going on either side, everybody would be looking, wouldn't they? That's what happened here. You couldn't, you could not say that this people Israel had not been given a very wonderful warning that the time was fulfilled because the, the, uh, John the Baptist was the practical forerunner of this great saviour. You do notice when we were reading Matthew 11, the question is raised about Elijah, and you did notice possibly that it says these wonderful words about the Son. No man knoweth the Son but the Father. And it doesn't say any more. And no man knoweth the Father but the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So if you take it that as it stands, that verse, it's easier for us to comprehend the Father than it is for us to comprehend the Son. And we do well to keep these things in mind, for everything has not been explained to us, and some things we have to take by sheer faith, because it's beyond the ability of man to enter into all these wonderful things in our limitations. Well now, shall we look at the uh, opening of Luke's Gospel? It tells us that many had taken in hand to set forth in order, that's a point to keep in mind, uh, the idea of keeping historic order was never observed, literally, by the Jewish writers. They had no uh, idea that they ought to keep strictly to a date or a calendar. But Luke differs from them, you'll find in some of his particulars, because he does give you specific chapter and verse with regard to historic fact. Uh, look with you with that in mind at the opening words which we have in chapter uh, it, chapter three, I think. Yes. How is this for dating? Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, well, you don't get anything like that in Matthew. It's one of those days. But this is dated. The 15th year, not merely in the reign, but the 15th year, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abedini, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. I don't know any historic event which has so laid itself open to be disqualified and proved to be wrong than there's such a passage as that. This is not trigonometry, I don't know what to call it. It's, it's for every point of the compass. It's pointing to one spot and one spot only. So sometimes when you're challenged by the folk who tell you we're believing a lot of fables and myths, say, bring me something out of the history of your own country 
that can stand on the same level as that. I suppose most of you have swallowed that myth, 1066, William the Conqueror. So have I. But I haven't got the remotest idea how to prove it. I should have to start from the beginning. But what's it matter? But here these things do matter. And so we are thankful that a mind like Luke was used by God to give us Gentiles. You see, he is the only man that goes back to Adam. And he was the right-hand man of the Apostle Paul. And so we find this uh, new approach. Well now, he says in this first chapter of Luke that it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the first, very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now, instead of starting straight off with, at Bethlehem, Christ is born, he says there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah. And if, if you knew the dates when the courses had to take up the priesthood and put them down again, you'd know what date in the year this was. He's committed himself. The course of a buyer. You say, well, will you tell me? Say, no, because I've forgotten. But you can look it up if you wish to. And his wife uh, was the daughter of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And Zacharias, in the course of his ministry, received a visit from an angel who revealed that a son should be born to Elizabeth and it says in verse um, 15 he should be great in the sight of the Lord should drink neither wine nor strong drink and he should be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And you notice that that is mentioned again in another point of view in verse 41. Mary is now gone to this relative of hers because of a need for shelter and care. And uh, verse 40, she entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost and spake. So there was, right from the birth of these two, John the Baptist, the forerunner, and Christ the one he came to herald, are introduced in this particular way. Coming back again to the first chapter, it says in verse 16 of chapter 1, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elias, in our version, is Greek. Elijah is the Old Testament, so it's the same person. So it says here, he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, that tells you that he wasn't Elijah, doesn't it? Because he was going before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, before we go a, a, a step further, let's look back at the last prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And in case you've forgotten, the word Malak means a messenger, and the I on the end means the possessive case. It means my messenger. So Malachi is the prophecy of my messenger. Chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger. And then presently, 
It says in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So there is Elijah that has to come, a forerunner at the second coming of Christ. But if you keep now for a minute to the Old Testament and go to the passage I partly referred to, Isaiah 40, you will see that John the Baptist is also said to have fulfilled that passage. The prophecy of Isaiah divides into three parts. Uh, chapters 1 to, I forget, about 35 is the first part. Chapter 36 to 39 goes back into history, all about the king of Assyria. And chapter 40 commences the prophecy again on to the end. So this is the second half of the great prophecy of Isaiah. And it starts with the words, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well now we find in the record of John the Baptist that he fulfilled that prophecy. Turn for a moment, will you, to John, the first chapter. All this is common knowledge, I know, but I must include all these things to make a consistent witness. John, the first chapter. After the introduction, which occupies the first 18 verses, we read, And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? A good many folks have succumbed to a temptation when they've been badgered by journalists to give an account of themselves. Who art thou? John the Baptist had the opportunity. And he said, he confessed, and denied not but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Art thou that prophet? And we're not quite sure what they meant because they had different prophets in their mind, in their writings. He said, no. Then said they unto him, Who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And isn't it a wonderful thought that in this chapter Christ is introduced to us as the Word? As the Word. And John the Baptist says, I'm a voice. That's a fine connection between the Lord and those who speak for him, isn't it? He's the Word, but John says, I'm a voice. In the same chapter, we are told about Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John the Baptist, he was not that light. Yet in chapter 5, our version says, 
He was. John the Baptist was a light. But then, of course, you're prepared. In John the fifth chapter, it's the word that means a lamp. So if Christ is the word, John says, I'm a voice. If Christ is the light, John says, let me be a lamp. Now you can go on with that, but you can quite see what a wonderful connection there is between this man. Now, he was the greatest of his kind, John the Baptist. And the more you magnify John, the more you magnify the Son, because he said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and undo the latchet of his shoe. That's John the Baptist. So you see, there was this wonderful preparation that God had granted to this people, that amongst them should this one arise. We'll come back to Luke 1. And we are told that Zechariah was not quite certain as to uh, what it was all about. And we come in the next case to the second testimony of the angel. Oh, I ought to have gone as far as verse 18. And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. So the birth of John the Baptist was a part of the beginning of making known the glad tidings, or, as we know the word is, the gospel. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because, you see, an element of doubt had crept into his mind. But we can sympathise with him, can't we? Even as we can sympathise with Abraham, who was in the same predicament, and yet God said, look at the stars, can you count them? so shall thy seed be. He staggered not at the promise of God. He just believed what God said. He believed in God that quickeneth the dead, it says. And poor Zacharias, he didn't quite rise to that. Well, now we have this question of John the Baptist. Let's turn, shall we, again to Matthew, the 11th chapter. Because if you were reading with us, Matthew 11, you know this question is raised again with a somewhat different answer. First of all, you notice that John as a wonderful witness is in prison and he was shortly to be beheaded. When we were looking at the word witness recently, we reminded ourselves that the word is translated in Revelation martyr. And the same word which is translated witness or testify or bear record and martyr are all one of the same words. It doesn't mean to say that you are not a witness unless you're beheaded or burnt at the stake. But God who knows the hearts, he knows whether what you stand up for now, you'd stand up for if you were threatened with that. Whether you love the truth even to that extreme. John the Baptist did. But, isn't it good to know that a man who was thus heralded by angels and given this rather supernatural touch of the birth about him and so marked out separate from God, he sometimes was overcome with a little wonder of doubt. Something just came into his mind. 
And if anyone listening to me says, well, I'm thankful to say, I've never doubted the Lord, it's never crossed my mind, I say, friend, where have you lived? You must have lived down a well or on top of a hill or somewhere. To be in touch with this world, with all its antagonism, with all its monstrous elements of unrest, is to shake the minds of most of us. And so it says here, uh, this John the Baptist, he said, Art thou he that should come? Now you remember that again, thinking of John's Gospel particularly in the first chapter, they asked John the Baptist, why is it that you are baptising? Well he said, he that sent me to baptise told me that by this means I should recognise the Saviour. And sure enough, Jesus went down to be baptised with the rest and at that baptism, the heaven opened and a voice was heard saying, This is my beloved son. And John raised his finger and said presently, Behold the Lamb of God. You see? So he has had that witness from heaven. And yet, he was shaken a bit. I don't know what you'd be like, what I'd be like, if we were put in a prison by a king like Herod. Possibly we'd have a little bit of wonder as to what was happening. I don't know. And so we have this statement. He said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And our Saviour, first of all, sent back an answer to tell John what had happened. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead, deaf ear, the dead are raised, and so on. All those things giving an attestation that the one who spoke was sent by God. Because, you know, on one occasion, when certain challenged him, and they said, this is blasphemy. You say to that man, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But none can forgive sins but God only. So our Saviour said, well, all right. Whether it's easier to say, son, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say to a man sick of a palsy, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, I know which is easier. I could be dressed in a surplus. I could stand at an altar rail. I could raise my two fingers like that and pronounce an absolution and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what had happened. Just take it or leave it. But if I had a man sick of the palsy in front of me and I said, rise, take up your bed and walk, and he did, you say, well, God's put his seal upon that man because he would never have permitted it unless what he claimed to be true. So these miracles, you see, they were signs, they were witnesses, they were evidences. And so he said, you go back and tell him that. But now, notice this. Our Saviour didn't reprimand John. Our Saviour didn't belittle him in the ears of those who listened. He said, verse 7, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? No, he said. A prophet. Yea, more than a prophet. And so presently the question comes up. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, this is 13, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah 
which was for to come. So, one passage of the New Testament says, Art thou Elijah? And he says, No. And another passage says, This is Elijah. But, friends, it's introduced by the conditional word, If. Now, I've been rather severely reprimanded by one because I dare to introduce the idea of an if at the day of Pentecost. You see, this one who challenged me and criticised me, he believes that the church began at Pentecost. But I said, when the Apostle explained what Pentecost stood for, he said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And the sun hasn't yet turned to darkness, nor to moon, to blood, and the great and dead, dreadful day of the Lord hasn't come yet. But the beginnings of that prophecy did. He poured out his spirit on the, on the men and the women that they prophesied. And waited. And when they came to our Saviour, as recorded in Act 1, they said, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know. You go on preaching. And Peter calls upon that self-same company to repent. And God will send back Jesus. And the times of refreshing shall commence, for you are the children of the prophets. But there was an if about it. Supposing they didn't repent. Supposing they were called upon to repent by John the Baptist. And they were called upon to repent by our Saviour, and they were called upon to repent by the Apostles, and they would not. Well then, John the Baptist went before our Saviour in the spirit and power of Elijah, but the literal fulfilment of Malachi will take place before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come. So I think we can just leave that part to speak for itself. And now we'll take the next annunciation of the angel, and this one refers to the birth of our Saviour. I mustn't spend all the time on the forerunner. Luke 1, same chapter, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, see the same angel, sent that had come before, came again, was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favoured, the Lord be with, is with thee, blessed art thou among women, Highly favoured. I think you know that that word is lifted out and repeated in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says of you and me that we are accepted in the beloved. The same word used by the angel to mark off the peculiar outstanding blessedness of this mother of the Saviour is used of such people as you and me in Christ. Highly favoured. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. 
And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So that's the salutation. He shall be great. He shall be the son of the highest. The word is also the word exalted. He's going to be the actual successor to his father David. And then we have a very wonderful statement. I want just to draw your attention to verse 35. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Now, of course, we may say that is God's way of saying that is how the conception took place. I don't know these things. I've got no secret information. But I do notice this, that the same word, overshadow, occurs again when our Saviour appeared with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. When it says, um, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice spoke. And you know this, have you ever stopped to think to yourself, I wonder why on that Mount of Transfiguration Peter should blurt out, let us build three tabernacles. Have you ever wondered? Well, you see, if you were Peter and you knew that the word overshadow was definitely used of the tabernacle, the overshadowing of the tabernacle by God and the cloud, one of the things that would jump into his mind is tabernacle. Three tabernacles. Why three? I don't know. Except he said one for Elijah and one for Moses and one for thee. And then you say, I know what you're going to say next. Yes. John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh, that's this child that's being spoken of here, and dwelt among us, not exactly, tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. Our Saviour was here in transit. Just a few years and gone. So, uh, here we have here, Another reference, overshadow thee. But there's yet one more, and I think I would like you to go back to see this in Psalm 139 and 140. Psalm 140 first. I don't mean 141st Psalm, friends, but we'll look at the out of order, 140. And then 139. 140. Um, There's a passage which I want. Now let me see if I've got it here to guide me. I don't think I have. Maybe 7th verse is it? Oh yes. 7th verse. Oh God the Lord the strength of my salvation. Thou hast covered my head 
in the day of battle. <coughs> you see, you're not left guessing what the word covered means. It means an attack. Now, what you know of the activity of Satan? That Satan would not hesitate to destroy that child before its birth, if he could. He didn't hesitate to put the Son of God to death by stirring up the animosity of the Jew and the callousness of the Romans. He would have no hesitation in doing that. So now you look at Psalm 139. Verse 13, For thou hast possessed me, my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Covered me. Same word as in Psalm 140. Two coming together. Thou hast covered my head as in the day of battle. Well, that's to protect you. And here he says, Thou hast covered me to protect me before my birth. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously brought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Needs a good deal of careful examination, those passages. But, there's a little hint there of Christ. Because you remember later on he said, A body hast thou prepared me, lo, I come. And he came to the lower parts of the earth. And he speaks about his members. So we come back to Luke 1. And Mary was given an assurance that this child upon whom rests your salvation and mine would be overshadowed and according to the way in which it is used preserved and protected. And then we have the fact that Mary at last gives birth to this child and she is moved to give her song. Verse 46 you see, we get um, My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden for behold from henceforth all generations shall call thee blessed. And then presently the father of Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost Verse 67, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. And goes on to speak about this child. Verse 76, and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. The, the one before whom he went was called the son of the highest and he was the prophet of the highest you see the two going together and thou shalt go before the face of the Lord thou shalt go before the face of the Lord 
But you say, this is only a child. And the Lord is the great title of God in the Old Testament. So sacred that you, in the ordinary way, a Jew does not use the word. The very word which you have in Isaiah 40, when it speaks about prepare ye the way of the Lord, is the name Jehovah. And that is said to be what John the Baptist was doing. And here this man speaking, apparently by inspiration, he uses the same. So you see, when we're speaking about the sun, we haven't plumbed its depths or heights yet. As I repeat what it said in Matthew 11, no man knoweth the Son, save the Father. Doesn't go further than that. There's some things that are not explainable. Uh, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Now I want you to notice, if you will, this intended parallel. Verse 18. John the Baptist. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. Now would you look at the end of the next chapter. Verse 52. This is Jesus. Increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. There's something to say about both of them. They both had a supernatural touch about their birth, but they're both growing. They both grew, just like children do. And this one was found discussing in the temple. If you look at verse 46, it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple. You may say to yourself, I wonder how it was he got lost like that. Well, a caravan that was going to move was always under a certain regulation. There was always certain things that had been left behind. Uh, we're up to date, you know, when we start off on our holidays and then suddenly remember we've left whatever it might be on the kitchen mantelpiece or whatnot. Oh, yes. So, it was a much more serious thing if you were in a caravan in those days so you assembled, you all went together, you didn't bother who was there or who was not, you only went just a very short distance on your way and stopped. And then you say, well, I thought he was with us, where is he? Oh, we better go back, see, that was, that was what was happening. And our Saviour was found in the temple. And he was discussing with the doctors. But I'm very precocious about it, for after that it says, he says, um, verse 49 how is it that she sought me wished she not I must be about my father's business well Joseph would never misunderstand him he wasn't doing any business for Joseph my father's business that's all he said now after that instead of taking a high line and saying you treat me with respect I understood not the saying which he spake unto them and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. I don't know which is the more wonderful, his high glory or his condescension. Knowing that he came from God and went to God. 
they took a towel and girded himself and began to wash his disciples' feet. Knowing he came from God and was going back. And here he says, I'm about my father's business. And then he went down to Nazareth. Such a low place that it became a proverb to say, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? He went there. And he was subject unto them. And a day is coming when that self-same spirit is going to bring the whole purpose of the ages to its glorious goal. Then shall the Son be subject unto him that put all things under him that at long last the purpose of creation and the purpose of redemption should be reached that God may be all in all. Now there's one more that we must include and that is that the shepherds they also received an angelic witness. And we find that when they received this um, witness by the angels they went to see in contrast with those scribes and Pharisees who could glibly tell Herod when he said to them where shall he be born that is king of the Jews they said oh we'll be born at Bethlehem for it is written but there's no evidence they ever went to see yes see friends it's one thing to be able to rattle off text of scripture. It's another thing for that scripture to lead you to the feet of Christ. I'm not giving away anything because it's so long ago. There was one friend who used to come to this chapel sometimes who was everlastingly telling me how many times he'd read this and read that and read the other. I think it was 300 times he'd read the gospel according to Luke or something. So you know what I said to him one day? I was rude, of course, I know. I said, oh, well, he could walk right through Smithfield Market and come out the other end still hungry. It isn't what, how many times you've read it, but whether it's been leading you to the Christ who fills it with all his glory. And these shepherds, illiterate as they may have been, they had a visit from the angels. And so they had those wonderful words, you remember, when it says, peace on earth, goodwill to men at the birth of this Saviour. Well, I think that's about as far as we're able to go this evening because time doesn't stand still. And I'm just going to mention, before we close down on this tape, that presently we hope to have a book printed which will deal with this great question that we've been canvassing and the rest of the time, the sun. And we can mention that we have this literature without any feeling that it's mere advertising because it's all a part of our service. And if once you can read and study what can be written and put in a book, it may supplement and make more clear what is not always possible in the limited time of these present tape recordings.